Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mayo, along with Jim Callis this week, um, as we continue to take turns playing host as Jason Ratliff continues to recuperate. We've got a terrific show as we record this. It is minor league opening day. It's just fun to say that. We'll have lots to talk about uh, as we get minor league baseball for for the first time in, in almost two years. Got a couple of new members of the top 100 list to talk about. Of course, can't have a podcast without talking about the draft. We're going to take a, a little look at some some interesting lineages of some of this year's draft prospects. Got uh, an interview with Vanderbilt head coach Tim Corbin. I hear he's got a couple of good pitching prospects on his roster currently. And then of course, as always, we will finish off with a question from you, the listeners, in our mailbag. Jim, it is minor league opening day. I'm I'm working hard to contain my excitement, but it's been so long since we've had actual games and information outside of, of Major League Baseball uh, that I'm, I'm kind of giddy. I feel like a kid again. Yeah, I, I was, you know, I've been covering this stuff for, you know, a little bit more than 30 years, and I don't think I've ever been this excited about a, a minor league opening day, you know, which is obviously direct reflection, the fact that we didn't have one last year, but just to be able to see guys play, um, you know, we'll talk about those guys in, in a little bit, you know, but I mean, you know, everybody from last year's draft, you know, outside of Garrett Crochet in the big leagues, uh, you know, has yet to make their, their debut. So we get to see those guys and, and you point out, I mean, you know, we, I'm sure you've been asked this a lot because I've been asked this a lot in the last year, like, how did you guys, you know, possibly, you know, evaluate players when they weren't playing? And it's tough. I mean, look, you can get information from the alternate site. You can get information from instructional league, which other teams saw or spring training, which other teams saw. So you could cross check a little bit, but I mean, aside from just the sheer joy of, of watching the best prospects in baseball play, I just feel like we'll have better reports and, and more action. And when we update our top 30 lists at mid season, we'll actually have a lot more information to go on. It's, it's kind of parallel, I, I think, to covering the draft this year, Jonathan, where, you know, last year the season ended so abruptly at the beginning of March and nobody was playing. Um, and it made like three months of draft coverage kind of odd with, without any backdrop of games. And it's been fun again this year to talk to guys as games are going on and, and guys stock is going up and down rather than kind of being locked in place in March. Yeah, it's it, it's all great to have all that information and that. Before we like dig into some of the players, we want to say like just in general, you know, Jim and, and we don't uh, we don't get out to minor league games as much as I think either of us would like to. Uh, but we've all been in minor league parks, we've all seen things. So before we sort of dig down into like the the, the prospecty goodness of what's about to happen, just what what are some of your favorite things about minor league baseball in general? I just love the atmosphere at the ballpark. I mean, you're, you're seeing, you know, baseball, you know, without necessarily all the bells and whistles you get at the big leagues. I, I don't think the players take themselves as seriously, um, you know, just seeing guys strive to get to the big leagues. And, and I'll actually give you my favorite minor league opening day memory, um, which was actually my first minor league opening day when I was at Baseball America in 1989. I was the uh, official scorer. I wasn't making a lot of money those days. So I was also the official scorer for the uh, Durham Bulls, which were owned by Miles Wolf, who also owned Baseball America. And um, 
back then. I don't know if you remember old, old Durham Athletic Park, the, the park that was in the movie Bull Durham, Jonathan. Did you ever go there? Did you ever make it there? Uh, I never made it there, unfortunately. Well, anyway, the, the press box was field level behind home plate. Like it was sunken a little bit, but you, we were, you know, basically wild pitches came you know, right to us. And um, this was not my opening day memory, but one time Rudy Cienes, who, who pitched in the big leagues a little bit, who threw really hard, threw, like had a fastball get away from him that that was hissing as it came through the chicken wire screen and basically exploded on the cinder wall block wall behind our heads. But <laughs> which was always like a unique perspective from which to watch a game. So the opening double, I guess we must have had rain. So we had opening day doubleheader, Durham Bulls, Frederick Keys, Orioles affiliate, so there's seven inning games in, in minor league doubleheaders back then. First game I, I've ever scored is an official score. Dennis Berlin game of the Bulls throws a perfect game, and which was pretty cool. And, and nobody remembers Dennis Berlin game because he hurt his arm that year, but he was he was a pretty good pitching prospect, um, and, and never pitched in the big leagues. Second game of the doubleheader, Steve Avery, who was the number two pick in the previous year's draft, if I remember correctly, two or three, um, got got within. Th- Five outs of a no-hitter. He, he took a no-hitter into the sixth. And I remember thinking, man, I hope his first hit is a clean one so I don't have to make like a ruling on, on this back-to-back double-hitter, double-header, no-hitter on opening day. But it's just like the atmosphere in minor league park, it's just – it's different. It's more intimate than being at a than being at a big league park. Yeah, I, uh, it's funny. I had a couple of memories uh, jump into my head, and uh, you know, even in you know when, when it's like an exciting new ballpark and things like that. Way back uh, in the day, when we used to run around and do a, a lot of video things um, on minorleaguebaseball.com, uh, I remember going to the openings of a, of a couple new ballparks. The the one that really stood out was uh, going to the Great Lakes Loons. Which is the you know was the low A affiliate in the Midwest League for the Los Angeles Dodgers when that ballpark opened, and we did uh, we did an interview with uh, with a young left-handed pitching prospect by the name of Clayton Kershaw. I'm not sure what became of him. Um, the the funny thing is, Jim, about that interview is because he was you know he was so young and so unaccustomed to doing these things, and we didn't realize at the time. But, you know, we did the interview standing up. He was rocking back and forth so much that we couldn't use the interview. Huh. So, so that was the, after that point, we're like, you know, I think we'll do these sitting down um, from now on. Uh, it was a shame. Uh, that team also had Kenley Jansen as a catcher. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so I remember going to, 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 to their ballpark in Great Lakes Loons. And then I honestly, I'm not 100% sure if this was opening day or just Altoona's home opener, but I did see Steven Strasburg's professional debut in Altoona. Uh, and Altoona is about two hours from my, my home in Pittsburgh, so I've been there several times. Uh, I've seen some fantastic games there. It's a, it's a, it's a nice double-A ballpark, but the buzz that was there uh, for just a regular minor league uh, opener – uh, because of Strasbourg uh, was 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 kind of a, a sight to, to to be seen, and much like in Durham, you know, even though Altoona is a, a larger park than the old uh, Durham ballpark, uh, the press box is not really equipped for huge amounts of national press. So it was uh, it, it was jam packed, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, so uh, you know, it's. <laughs> It's fun to know that there's going to be a whole nother year's worth of memories like that. And, and obviously for us, uh, you know, as much, we love the atmosphere, we love going, but we also love seeing the, the, the players. And 
you mentioned Jim, like none of the 2020 draftees have, have played an inning of actual real baseball. So we'll get to see them now. Uh, who are some of the top 100 prospects, whether they're 2020 draftees or not, that you are the most excited to see get going here in, in 2021? I'd say for me, it's, it's mostly guys I haven't seen or I haven't seen play professionally. Like, you know, obviously we've got Wander Franco and Adley Rutschman, one, two on our top 100 prospects list. And I've seen those guys. So like, I am excited to see them, but they wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't be at the top of my list. I mean, you know, I, I just think of all the 2020 draftees, you know, Spencer Torkelson, who's, you know, one of the best hitters to come out of the draft in, in decades, or, you know, Max Meyer with his wipeout slider and mid, mid-90s fastball, or Asa Lacey or Austin Martin, or even some of the high school kids like Robert Hassel and Zach Veen, like, like all those guys. Like, you could, you could <laughs> yeah, I could do a list of just 2020 draftees I'm interested in seeing. And then, sure. I mean, I think, you know, of guys who are already in professional baseball, Number one on my list would be, I think, Marco Luciano with the Giants. Like, I, I was joking with uh, the Giants farm director, Kyle Haynes. Like, yeah, he's already got my vote for the Futures game. I don't even care what he does this year. Like, I, I'm going to vote for Marco Luciano being the Futures game because I want to see him on that stage. But, I mean, I, I've just heard so much about his electric bat speed um, and the power. And he had a great debut as a 17-year-old in the U.S. in 2019 and then didn't get to play last year. So, he... I have I have not I've, I've been doing smart things this morning. I've not consulted the schedule, but he he will be my must see MILB TV viewing today if his game is on MILB TV, which I I have not looked to see if it is. Yeah, I, have to, I haven't I haven't checked the TV schedule uh, either because I I will be tuning in. I, I think I'm going to take a slightly different tack just because I don't want to repeat you know the, you know the, all the guys that you saw. Uh, I'm excited to see. There are a couple guys who are at advanced levels, uh, most of them for the, you know, for the first time that I'm excited. You mentioned, you mentioned Adley Rushman, who's the, you know, the 2019 number one overall pick, uh, who barely you know, has, has played professional baseball. He'll be in double A. Uh, I think that's going to be exciting. Uh, you mentioned Wander Franco. Obviously, he, he, you know, I don't say I was surprised, but it's interesting what different teams uh, are doing with some of their younger talent in terms of where they're starting. You know, Marco Luciano is starting in, in low A in San Jose. I, I think he's going to hit his way up from there. Wander Franco, I'm not saying that Franco and Luciano are the same guy, uh, not at all. But, you know, Franco is starting in, in AAA. I'm really curious to see what Bobby Witt Jr. does in his first real full season of baseball, uh, pro ball. He's going to be in AA. Uh, C.J. Abrams, number eight on the top 100, also in, in AA from that uh, 2019 draft. So it's interesting to see some of these guys that we didn't see for a year and we could only rely on mostly internal reports on how they were doing uh, to see the fact that they showed enough for them to kind of uh, get moved to these these advanced levels. Uh, I, th- I think that that Witt and Abrams, because they're you know we're both high school shortstops, uh, they're seven and eight on the top one hundred. I think not that they have similar skill sets, but I think people are going to be looking at the two of them together. And the fact that both of them are starting the year in Double A is really exciting uh, to see how quickly they can can get up and, and impact the big leagues. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because I I sensed I think we've talked about this on the podcast. And I never articulate this well, so hopefully I can articulate this a little bit better. We're all counting on I know. I'm going to try. But but we, you know, from talking to people when we're doing top 30 lists or just various projects in the offseason, 
my sense was that that most teams were going to treat their best prospects as if there were kind of a pseudo 2020 season. Now I know like for the super young guys, a lot of teams felt like having them, the teams that brought those players to their alternate sites that exposed them to a higher caliber of, I mean, it wasn't the same as playing in games for five months straight, but exposed them to a higher caliber of pitching than say Bobby Witt and CJ Abrams would have faced had they been begun last year in low a ball. Um, but, but, but the sense that I'd gotten and it, it's played out, you know, not necessarily with the giants, but with a lot of the guys you cited and in a lot of other examples that teams treated it as if 2020 happened, you know, Abrams and Witt on all likelihood would have begun last year in low a probably gone to high a mid season and then gone to double a this year. And they kept them on that schedule. You know, Franco, I think, you know, would have started last year in double a and might've played his way to the big leagues, but they didn't treat it like, well, he only played in high a, you know, two years ago. So we're going to say, you know, they, they skipped. I, I think a lot of teams did that. I, I'd say you, you and I have been working on these, you know, along with, with Sam Dykstra, you know, where everybody's, you know, the teams we cover where their prospect, top 30 prospects are beginning the season. And I would say the vast majority of the teams I have, the Gi- the Giants are one of them and they're an exception, accelerated their guys. You know, I saw the Dodgers do it with, you know, Michael Bush and Cody Hosey, who, barely like Bush got hurt. He didn't even play, you know, full season, but he played like, I think five games of full season ball, maybe 10 total in his debut in 19. And he and Hosey are in double a after, you know, barely playing full season ball two years ago. We saw it with the Astros and Peter Leon, Cuban defector. They just signed him in January. He's not only going to go to double a to begin his career and he's a little bit older, but he's going to go to double a to begin his career. He's also going to try to learn, shortstop somewhat on the fly after looking good working out there during the spring training. He's normally a center fielder. So uh, did you see that? I mean, it seems like most clubs treated it as, you know, with their best players, best prospects. Okay. We're going to, you know, 2020, the development they got, we're going to make that the equivalent of what they would have got. And we're going to move on rather than just put them where they would have started last year. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, the, the alternate site, you know, varied in degrees of, of what the level of competition was like, but I think, that likely what happened, you know, across the, the board, this is without, you know, pulling all 30 teams, is that when you had these players from lower levels who had barely played, even though it wasn't real competition, they were facing a much higher level of pitching, uh, more advanced pitching. Uh, guys who were, had been big leaguers, uh, AAA, you know, AA. I, I think that enabled the hitters to, you know, get as close to the, you know, what would have been in, in, in terms of their development over a full season, not as many reps, obviously, but I remember talking to different of my, you know, the, the different teams that, that I oversee for the, for the alt-site reports that we did. And a lot of them thought that a lot of the young, the, the super young players that were the all that were at the alt-site, and I'm not even talking about the Bobby Witts or CJ Abrams, but like the, the guys who, wouldn't have even been in full season ball, but went to the alt site. Um, they may have benefited more from that than, say, the uh, you know a summer in the Gulf Coast League. And I think that you know to extrapolate that to the Bobby Witts and the C.J. Abrams and, and the Cody Hoseys and guys like that is that getting to face that advanced level of pitching really enabled them to kind of close the, the the learning curve, so to speak. To, to make up for the lack of actually ga- actual games played. 
Yeah, but, I had farm directors make the same point to me. Yeah, yeah. You, um, you, you, your younger guys, even guys who might have gone to low class A, you know, it wasn't games, but you're facing double A, triple A caliber pitching at the alt site, and you weren't going to see those guys last year. So while it wasn't perfect, there were some some benefits from alt site development. Right, absolutely. Now, one guy that we are not going to see right out of the gate, unfortunately, uh, much to Jim's chagrin, especially, is Jason Dominguez, the uh, the Yankees phenom. Jim, what's the what's the latest there? You know, and I'll applaud the Yankees for this, and it kind of makes sense to me. And, and you know, also bear in mind too that the Yankees were one of two teams, Cardinals were the other, that did not have an instructional league last fall. So, you know, Jason Dominguez has yet to make his pro debut. He was not at the alt site. You know, there's been very little. Uh, you know, pro exposure for him. And, you know, the, the hype machine, you know, I, I say this all the time, the hype machine on Jason Dominguez is, is out of control. I think he's the most hyped and maybe the most tooled up international prospect I can remember. And of course I contribute to that hyped machine because every time I write about him, I, I mentioned that he gets compared to Mike Trout and Mickey Mantle and Bo Jackson. So it's, I, I'm, I'm not helping slow down that hype train at all. Not at but, all. you know, it, it's interesting because I know there was discussion. I, it seems like it was a decade ago, Jonathan, but I was actually in Yankees minor league camp last year. Or, you know, the, the minor league camp was just getting going um, last year before the pandemic. And they hadn't decided what they're going to do with Jason Dominguez yet. But there was some thought, you know, like usually your most advanced, you know, international prospects will make their U.S. debuts, usually in a complex-based league the next year. And the super advanced prospects, like your Vlad Guerrero's, your Wander Franco's, those guys will go to say advanced rookie league, like which no longer exists, but like the the Appalachian League in, in both those guys' cases. And there was actually talk internally with the Yankees, maybe we should send maybe we could send Jason Dominguez to low class A to make his pro debut at age 17, which you know would have been pretty amazing. Like I can't even remember the last international guy who did that at, at that age. Um, and and so. You know, he, he, you know, he, he did a lot of working out on his own in the Dominican last year, um, you know, because he, he didn't come to the alt site and then they didn't have instructional league. So couldn't really, you know, obviously participate in that. And so while I think they could have done the same approach and said, well, you know, he did do some development and, you know, he's 18 now. We would have sent him to, to low A to begin this year, probably. So we're just going to continue on that path. I don't think pumping the brakes on him a little bit is a bad thing now. And, and, and even pumping the brakes is, is relative. Like, like the Yankees have said, they're not ruling out the possibility that he could go to low a Tampa, you know, at some point to make his pro debut. But like, I think, you know, he's still only 17 years old or I'm sorry, he turned 18 in February. So he's, he's 18 and, and almost three months now. Um, I, I, you know, as much as I'd like to see him, as much as everybody would like to see him, I, I think it makes some sense to, you know, hey, let, let's keep him an extended spring for a little bit, and and then we'll send him out. You know, you know, a little bit when we think he's a little bit more ready. I mean, were you were you surprised? I mean, what do you think of that move? Were you surprised no, I, by I that? I actually think it makes sense. You know, and I was you know, uh, since none of us have ever actually laid eyes on him in, in any real way. Like you know, the sort of the hype is, and it's as you said, it's hype coming from people whose opinions we we trust who tend not to stray towards you know hyperbolic statements. So I think that uh, you know, we were all excited to see him, but from the Yankees' standpoint, there is literally no risk in terms of holding him back, letting him get his feet under him in the United States for a little bit longer, and then let his performance dictate how quickly he moves as opposed to rushing him out to a place just to get him on a roster. 
And if he struggles, you, you don't want, there's no reason for that whatsoever. Um, so I, I actually do think, I agree with you. I think that is uh, the, the, the right move to make. Now, unfortunately, that means he's not on a minor league roster to start the season. Um, but there are some minor league rosters that are incredibly loaded. And our colleague Sam Dykstra uh, recently put out a story, kind of like a minor league team power rankings uh, with the most loaded minor league rosters. Um, without going into too much detail, uh, Durham Bulls, the Rays AAA affiliate is number one. Uh, the Everett Aqua Sox, uh, the Seattle Mariners high A affiliate. This is a good uh, way to also remind people of a lot of the affiliate changes and level changes. It's going to uh, take Hamp- me a couple of years, Jonathan. Yeah, without, without question. The uh, New Hampshire Fisher Cats, uh, the Blue Jays AA, that one stayed the same, so that's good. They're number three. The Pensacola Blue Wahoos, that's the Marlins AA affiliate, is four. And then rounding up the top five, the Brooklyn Cyclones, uh, still a Mets affiliate, but now considered high A. Um, Jim, uh, of these teams, and I know I'm stepping right into this, pick one that you're really excited to see. Well, I'll take the obvious one, but first I want to, uh, not that they like necessarily did it on purpose, but, but, but thank the, the White Sox who I cover all four of their affiliates, Jonathan are the same affiliates at the same levels. So <laughs> th- I like, like thank, thank the White Sox for that. There's one farm system I will be able to, uh, keep straight, but no, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll go with the number one team. I mean, that, that Sam had. I think it was a good choice. I mean, the Rays have, I, I don't think there's any question, the best farm system in baseball, both in terms of star talent and depth. You've got the best prospect in baseball there with, with Wander Franco. You've got one of the best middle infield prospects in, in Vidal Brujan, who can who could do a lot of things. You know, I'm not sure when Brendan McKay is supposed to be back, but, you know, you're talking about a guy who's one of the top pitching prospects in baseball and also a two-way guy. You've got Taylor Walls, who's one of the best defensive players in the minors. There's, I'm not going to list every guy there, but just two more. Joe Ryan, who had one of the best seasons any minor league pitcher had in 2019, kind of came out of nowhere. And then Brent Honeywell, who, you know, I don't know if we ever had him, Jonathan, as the top pitching prospect in baseball, but he was pretty close. Yeah. And he's coming back from a, a litany of injuries, and he's on that Durham team too. And there's, I think, at least three other top 30 prospects they have on that club. Um, so that would be uh, the the team. You know, I mean, there are a lot of good ones on this list, but that would be the team I would be most interested in seeing. Well, I'm going to be boring, and I'm just going to take the number two team, and it's uh, it, and the Mariners are one of the the teams that I oversee. Uh, and that's the Everett Aqua Sox. And I think it starts with something that was sort of interesting. Uh, you know, uh, and Sam kind of alludes to this in his story. I actually thought Julio Rodriguez would, was going to start in double A um, based on everything I had heard with how he looked in the spring and, and then, you know, in minor league spring training. Uh, but they opted to start him in, in high A. I don't think he's going to be there for very long. So go check him out in, in Everett now uh, before he leaves. Uh, and then he's backed up by you know you know the the Mariners have gone college pitching crazy uh, in the first round over the last three years, and two of their three first round picks are are there in Emerson Hancock and George Kirby, um, both in the top 100. Uh, I got reports that Kirby's uh, stuff, like a lot of pitchers, has, has ticked up. He's throwing a lot harder, and the command is is ridiculous. Um, but he only, you know, threw a handful of innings during his pro debut. And Emerson Hancock has yet to throw uh, an official professional pitch 
uh, as their as their number one pick from last year. So uh, I'm excited to to see those guys, and they have a bunch of top thirty guys um, be behind behind them. Uh, it's going to be a really good rotation there in in Everett, uh, and along with obviously, like I said, with Julio Rodriguez uh, right in the middle of that lineup. Do you think, Jonathan, that they're trying to pump the brakes a little bit on on the, the Julio Rodriguez hype train just slightly? I mean, you know, he has played in the Arizona Fall League. He has played in the Dominican Winter League. That said, he only had 72 plate appearances in high class A in 2019 when he was 18 years old. He's only 20. You know, I know, I mean, we spec- We had a question about it last week on the podcast, and we've, we've talked about it before, too about, you know, when's he going to be ready? You know, when we were doing our, our look ahead at who the top prospect in baseball might be next year, I was kind of on the fence as to whether Julio Rodriguez is still going to qualify or not. You know, we bandied that about. But do you think that might be playing into it just a little bit too? Like, you know, if we send him to double A, he's that much closer. Let's let him get a month in high A and maybe slow down the hype a little bit. Yeah, that might be. I, I mean, it's funny because I think uh, at the same time, anytime I talk to anyone with the Mariners, all they can do is rave about how he looked, how he carries himself, all the things, right? So I think you're getting kind of both of those, both of those things happening simultaneously. Uh, but you know, I also think that you know they probably have in mind that they would l- love for him to get a certain amount of at bats, if possible, in the minor leagues, and this is a way to slow him down a little bit. You know, maybe get a full head of steam, and then uh, my guess is he spends what maybe a month in Everett, and then he heads up to to Double A. Uh, you've got Jared Kelnick who will be in Triple A knocking on the door, uh, and he doesn't have that much pro experience either. Uh, but I, I think there may be something to that, that they, you know, the combination, they want to make sure he gets uh, enough reps and to slow him down a little bit because um, I know he's eager to get there, and I think his performance is going to force their hand sooner rather than later. And where he starts the year doesn't really matter all that much because uh, I know he, he probably has an idea of where he'd like to, to finish the, the season regardless of, of where he starts. All right, before we take a break, let's take a quick look at guys who are new to the top 100. Uh, you know, the minor league season may just be starting, but obviously we've had a month of, of uh, big league action where guys in our top 100 have graduated off the list. Uh, two more guys graduated in the p- past week. Reds catcher Tyler Stevenson and Rays right-hander Luis Patino have both graduated and they were replaced on the top 100 by a pair of of Indians prospects, Bo Naylor and George Valera. Um, Jim, the Indians are your team, so why don't you give a quick rundown of what Naylor and Valera are about, and I'll just add in the fact that with Stevenson leaving, uh, that let Tyler Soderstrom, uh, the A's first-rounder, join the top-ten catchers list, and Quinn Priester, the Pirates right-hander, is now a uh, on the top-ten right-handers list now that Patino has graduated. Yeah, it's you know, yeah, you, you mean again things I've I've hammered on the podcast a lot. I'll need to go for the triple crown and mention how the Dodgers are doing a great job of winning and developing talent to to, to get the complete the Jim Callis bingo for everybody in this podcast. But you know, I, I've said you know repeatedly how the Indians have a number of of top you know advanced hitting prospects. Um, and, and I really feel like Naylor and Valera would have been on the top 100 a year ago had we had a season and they'd gone out and, and been able to, to play. You know, Naylor, younger brother of Josh Naylor, who's on the Indians now as well, um, they're the first Canadian brothers ever to be both first-round picks. That happened in 2018 for Bo. Um, his brother, he might not have quite as much raw power as Josh, but he's got good power. 
He's a better pure hitter. And, and the big thing with him is when he was drafted, he was one of the better high school hitters in that draft, Jonathan, as you remember. And the question was, like, like happens with all the top offensive catching prospects, do you keep him at catcher? Or do you expedite the bat and put him in another position? Because he was athletic enough to possibly play, say, third base. And he's been a lot better behind the plate than even the Indians thought he might be initially. So um, the, the receiving's really come along. He, he's worked to improve his arm. So he'll, you know, he had a, pr- a pretty solid full-season debut in the Midwest League, which was one of the hardest leagues to hit in um, two years ago. Um, and, and so he's going to now, you know, go to double A and we'll see what he does. And then Valera is part of a contingent of a lot of the bet. You know, we talked about all these guys getting not necessarily fast forwarded, but, but, you know, getting, you know, aggressive assignments based on where they were two years ago. George Valera has played six games in, in full season ball. Um, but he's going to start the year in high A with, with three other, the Indians, other best young hitting prospects. They've got a lot of guys with great swings. He might have the best swing in that system, potential 300, hitter, 25 homers, you know, kind of an average defender on a corner type of guy. But um, I, I could see both these guys, you know, putting up, you know, big numbers and, and, and rising significantly up the charts. Naylor's only 21, Valera's only 20. Good stuff, good stuff. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk what else? The MLB Draft, right here on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. All right, welcome back to the MLB Pipeline podcast. Jonathan May along with Jim Callis. And we're now about... We're two months away from the 2021 draft. It's in July. Uh, the All-Star Game, uh, you know, in and around the All-Star Game in, in Denver, in all likelihood, we're still waiting on sort of finalized details there. Um, but we uh, have been cranking along with uh, some of our draft content. Um, I wrote the first uh, mock draft. It now feels like, I don't know, about six months ago. Um, but... Uh, You've, you're working on a new mock, Jim, and I know that uh, so much is still up in the air. And I think everything is with that caveat of it's still crazy early, but it sounds to me like it's more of a mess at the top than maybe even I thought it was, you know, two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about, I mean, we'll, we'll fold our weekly Jack Lighter Kumar Rocker update in here that I think there's this public perception 
that the draft starts with, with, with lighter and rocker or rocker and lighter, and then it's everybody else. And we keep trying to dissuade people of that notion. I, I think the two high school shortstops, Jordan Lawler and Marcella Mayer are, are right there with them. I also think, well, that's the top tier four guys. Um, you know, the, the next two guys, I think you had in your mock a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan, Brady house, the, the Georgia high school shortstop um, and, and Henry Davis catcher at Louisville. I wouldn't be shocked if they win the top four in, in different scenarios. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting. So, you know, as we talked about on the podcast a while ago, you know, I did the, the, the lighter versus rocker story earlier in the year. And at that point, you know, lighter had thrown a no hitter in his first SEC start, seven no hitting hit innings in the second SEC start before he came out. Um, and, and Kumar Rocker's velocity was down. So when I did the story at the time and we, and I surveyed, you know, general managers and scouting directors and high level scouts, it was 25 to three landslide lighters better than rocker. And since then, you know, basically, you know, I think that would have probably been similar the week after that story came out, but it, but it, it's tightened up. And, and I think you'd even have you, I think you have more people who take rocker over lighter now in the last three weeks, rocker's velocity has been better. He, he's shown you that 94, 97 more consistently. The slider has been fantastic. And, and Jack lighters ERA. Now it, it's hard, Jonathan, as you know, uh, when you have a zero and a half ERA, it's hard to maintain that. And his ERA is quadrupled in the last three weeks as he's given up eight home runs. He's still not giving up a lot of hits, but when guys make contact, they're, they're hitting balls out of the park. He gave up three home runs this last weekend against Florida, um, two to Judd Fabian, who's actually resurrecting himself after a horrible start. We were striking out at a 40% clip. Um, I haven't checked, but Judd Fabian may be leading the nation in home runs now. Um, and, and he's making a lot more contact. But anyway, I, I think it's more muddled. I, I haven't finalized in my mind who's going where, Jonathan, but your, your, your hometown Pittsburgh Pirates, I think as far as we can tell, it, with the caveat that you mentioned, <laughs> we're not a month away from the draft like we would normally be at this time. We're nine weeks away. I think the consensus just in baseball right now is that the Pirates would, if the draft were today, and it's not, that the Pirates would take Jordan Lawler, the the, the high school shortstop from Dallas, with the number one overall pick. Um, and, and it'll be interesting. I also think it's possible that even though I, I, I laid out, just like you did when you did your mock, you know, there's kind of that top tier of four guys. I don't think it's a lock that, that Kumar Rocker or Jack Leiter go in the top four. You, you could see – if they, if they, not even sliding, but you know, if they go to four with the expectations at one point that they were going to go one, you know, you may have some bonus desires that don't mesh with the team that's maybe looking to save a little bit or stay right at slot, so then they can spend later in the draft. So it's, uh, it's extremely, extremely fluid, and I'm sure I, I think Jonathan, you have the next mock after this one in a couple weeks. Um, I don't even know if it's really going to be taking shape quite yet by then either. We may be having the same conversation two weeks from now. Right. I mean, I think some of it may depend on, you know, if, if Rocker and Lighter sort of are both consistently throwing well, that might cement them in that top four. But beyond that, we may not know much more than that. And, and it'll be interesting to, to see, I think, especially with, with Jack Lighter, uh, because he, he is a sophomore. Um, and, and it's something, uh, the, well, technically the a freshman, John, technically he's a freshman. Well, but I mean, yeah. right. But I'm in terms of, I mean, the, these are the, uh, and I'm teasing a little bit, some of the conversation with Vanderbilt head coach, Tim Corbin, which we're going to hear uh, in, in a little bit. Uh, but one of the things that he 
rightly pointed out is that this is these are the first innings Jack Leiter has ever thrown in the SEC. Um, and typically uh, for a normal sophomore, it's coming off of a, you know, a, a year as a, as a freshman. Uh, so, you know, Kumar Rocker, his freshman year had some ups and downs facing the SEC for, you know, for the, for the first time. So some of it might be just adjusting and, and learning, you know, this level and things like that. So I'll be very curious to see uh, where Leiter, who has, who has struggled comparatively of late, um, and, and, you know, and who set the bar so high with, with a no hitter in his, in his first SEC start. So it, it'll be interesting to see where, where that goes. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that, that mock when it, when it comes out, Jim. Um, but speaking of lighter and rocker, we're going to take a look at five guys in the draft who have interesting relatives slash lineages. Um, and this is not just guys who had dads who played in the big leagues, um, but it's dads who played professional sports or siblings. Uh, we, we, we've expanded the family tree uh, a little bit for this group of five. And, and to be honest, the five is actually six. Um, the first on the list, in, the, in no particular order, uh, of course, is Jack Leiter. Uh, we all know we all know Jack's dad Al. Uh, we've worked with him uh, on MLB Network. He pitched in the big leagues for a very long time. Jack's uncle uh, and cousin, both named Mark, uh, also pitched in the big leagues. Uh, so there's there's a lot of MLB lineage there for for Jack Leiter uh, that we've known about uh, for for quite some time, uh, and is a, makes for an interesting storyline. And so we can bug Al via text whenever possible. Well, Jonathan, we should uh, have Al on the podcast sometime. I think we should work on that. Al, if you're listening, the, uh, we're extending the invitation right now. If you're not um, listening, why aren't you? Yeah, seriously. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, Kumar Rocker, Jim. Um, t- you know, he does not have an MLB father. However, his, his family tree does point to uh, some pretty serious uh, athleticism and strength. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 you know, Vanderbilt not only cornering the market on on talent, but but cornering the market on on bloodlines as, as we talk about this. Yeah, you know, you 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 can't help but notice when you watch Kumar Rocker pick pitch. The, the first thing that jumps out, I think, even when we watch him warm up, is just how physical he is. He's he's six four, two fifty five, and and he's he's put together pretty well. I mean, he, and and so it should not come as a shock that he's the son of a former NFL defensive lineman in Tracy Rocker, who, who played at Auburn. Um, I think ah, I, well, I, I, I've now stepped in it. So I'll just go and say, it. I'm pretty sure Tracy Rocker won the Outland trophy as the nation's top defensive lineman when he was at um, Auburn. I was correct. He did. And he won the Lombardi award as well. Um, and currently um, I think he's a defensive line coach for the Eagles right now. Uh, Jonathan, but, uh, but you see, you have some, some really good bloodlines there and um, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with this. We'll, we'll go, I'll, I'll go back to you in a second, Jonathan, but like, since we, we might as well just knock out all the Vanderbilt guys, since they have so many, any bloodlines, Isaiah Thomas, who is not related to Isaiah Thomas, either of the Isaiah Thomas basketball players, but he that does, have, but he does have basketball roots because he's a cousin 
of NBA great Tim Duncan. And Isaiah Thomas, well, he's not going to go near the top of the draft like Leiter and Rocker will. I think he's going to go in the second or third round. He, he's, he's got, you know, pretty much, you know, if he hits, he could have solid tools across the board. There is some swing and miss, but, but he still makes a lot of, a lot of loud contact, you know, good speed, a uh, very interesting player. So, so three of our five guy spots occupied by Vanderbilt players. So I think we either need a Vanderbilt should be sponsoring this segment, Jonathan, or the hamburger chain should be sponsoring this five guys segment. We, we, we need a sponsor for this segment. Overall, yes. You know, specifically now, we maybe even like a 23 and me, something like that for, for this specific subject matter, I think would, would be a good, uh, would be a good sponsor, but yes, uh, the burgers, five guys, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, Next guy on our list is Will Bednar. Uh, you know, uh, he is a Pittsburgh guy, so I'm, I'm laying claim to him, even though it, he, he's currently pitching in Jim's part of the country. He is in Mississippi State. Um, he's really sort of stood out from the, the guys in that weekend rotation, uh, taking a nice step forward. And uh, he was a pretty good prep, you know, prep pitcher as well. My guess is he wasn't going to go high enough to sign anyway, but he had uh, he had some arm trouble, some biceps tendonitis, so he, he went on to Mississippi State. He's taken a big step forward, I think, mostly in terms of whether or not teams think that he can start. Uh, it's not the cleanest delivery in the world. There was always some reliever risk uh, there because there's some effort, um, but uh, I think he's made a, a step forward in terms of all of this stuff, he's got a four-pitch mix. He throws strikes. He's showing that it can it can hold up. So now he's a guy who, you know, is a, is a big, strong, durable starting pitcher type. His older brother, uh, David, is uh, pitching for the Pirates in the bullpen. I actually answered an inbox question last week from someone in, in sort of the greater Pittsburgh Pirate universe asking if there would be a chance that the Pirates could take him. Uh, we have him at 34 in our rankings, uh, without looking, I think the Pirates first pick in the second round of 37 could happen, but he also could pitch his way into the first round because the college arms, uh, move up last on our list, uh, is a, is a set of brothers actually, uh, which is, which is a lot of fun. And that's, uh, the, the McLean boys, um, Matt McLean is the guy that most people know about. He is at UCLA. Of course, he was the uh, number one pick of the D-backs back in 2018. Didn't sign, went on to UCLA, uh, had a terrible freshman year as a a full-time starter, kind of righted the ship in the the Cape, and then, uh, you know, was hitting extremely well in 2020 before the shutdown. He's an undersized guy, but he's shown he can play short. He got off to a a very, very slow start, Um, but come on lately, sort of hitting the the way people expected. He makes a lot of contact. There's more pop than you would think, given that he's only 5'10". And like I said, uh, this is a guy who entered college where people weren't exactly sure if he could play shortstop, and he's kind of shown that he's got more than enough arm to do that. so he is the elder McLean. There's, by the way, a third McLean that we're not even really talking about, uh, Sean, who plays for Arizona State. Um, the younger brother, Nick, is in high school um, at the same high school, Beckman High School in California, that, that Matt went to. Um, switch hitter, kind of a guy who's kind of been 
moving up the ranks uh, a little bit because uh, of his abilities at the plate. He makes a lot of contact, barrels the ball up. There's some power there. Uh, he's better from the the left side, even though he's a natural right-handed hitter. Um, kind of took a big step forward, mostly because he was trying to keep up with his brothers uh, in terms of, you know, in, in the weight room, strength and conditioning. So he, he, he now is in very, very good shape. He's gotten faster. He's shown he can play center field. Uh, so he's kind of a very intriguing guy to watch. He also has a UCLA commitment to contend with just like Matt did. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. All right. So that takes, uh, takes us through the five guys who have interesting relatives. When we come back, we'll have my conversation with Vanderbilt head coach Tim Corbin next on the MLB Pipeline podcast. Joining us on the Pipeline podcast now is the head coach of Vanderbilt University, and I like to think of him as my television broadcasting colleague from last year's draft broadcast, which was uh, was a lot of fun. Uh, Tim Corbin, Tim, it's good to see you again. Thanks for for taking some time. Yeah, good to see you again too. That was a lot of fun. There was some positives out of COVID, wasn't there? Uh, very few. Uh, yeah. It was very nice to share the airwaves uh, with you, and I guess with the draft in July. Um, your season will be done. Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe we'll, we'll all see each other in Denver. I have no idea what's going on on that front. Yeah, I, I, I don't know either. It's a little bit different than years past, but uh, our season will be done, which is good in a lot of different ways because you know that that, that becomes a tough obstacle when it happens during it if you're in the postseason. So that, that will be good from that vantage point. I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, you're no stranger to having first-round picks, top-of-the-draft kind of – picks um it, it seems for the most part guys in your program don't have a, a lot of difficulty focusing on the task at hand which is trying to help Vanderbilt you know make it uh, deep into the college world series and win the championship but these are you know young men and people are human uh like how have you helped uh manage uh, or help them manage that that balance of noticing all the scouts and needing to have home visits and, and, and all the things that come with the draft while also competing for a championship every year. Right. Uh, well, I, I think we, we talk about it long before it happens because I think if you, you get to that point and you don't really have any type of game plan, it's tough for the kids to manage and you have to put yourself in their shoes. It's, 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 it's not easy. They're, they're 21 years old. They're trying to navigate a, an academic schedule while playing for their school. And they're at the same time, they're trying to look after their personal interests, which is important too, because like anyone who goes to college, they want a professional career in something. So we, we talked about it long before that and the, the ability to, to center yourself when you get in the middle of, of something like this. I think the other thing, John, as you know, is a lot of these kids have gone through these processes before in, in high school. So it's not new to them, but I, I think they're able, much like playing baseball, they're able to slow their heartbeat down a little bit and use their parents and other resources as help as they go through it. But uh, we, we put a lot of emphasis on really centering your attention on the team, because if you do that, it seems to relieve a lot of those individual pressures. When you're trying to protect the team and you're trying to do things for the team, then individually the focus leaves you a little bit. And so we've, we've kind of taken that route, but I, I won't say that it's, it's easy. It, it's, it's not. And it, it's, uh, 
it's difficult on the kids. And when it's over, it's a, it's a, a big relief, but it, at the same time, we've done the best we, we have with it. And we're, we're certainly thankful to be in those situations because, you know, that means we've got some decent kids. So we're, we're not complaining too much. Before we, we dig into the, the two decent kids uh, that most people are talking about uh, this year, you know, you, you made me think while well, you're giving the answer about the sort of the flip side of this coin, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, your staff goes out and you recruit uh, a lot of players for the for the next wave of talent to come to Vanderbilt some some of those high schoolers are guys who go in the first round and never set foot on campus some end up you know uh going the way of Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter who will who will get to it in a little bit but like how nerve-wracking is that end of it for you where you you have this list of guys that you've recruited who you now have to wait and see like well when are they going to get drafted are they going to sign now a lot of a lot of players you know who have signed or committed to, to, to join you there, uh, follow through because it is such a good program and such a good school. But like, I would imagine that waiting to find out which high schoolers are actually going to join your program uh, must be a little nerve wracking on your end. It is. I, I just think from the standpoint of stability of your roster, because with the, the unknown of them, sometimes you can't help other guys that are in your program right now. And I, I think, if you just take the approach that every child could potentially be your personal child, then I think you, you just say, okay, what, what can we do to, to benefit kids and give them the information that they need prior to, but without that information, then it becomes difficult. So it is a, in a, it's a waiting game. Uh, but I think what I've done with age is learn to, understand much like how you tell your players, John, if, if it's out of your control, there's only so much you can do. You try to listen really well to the kids and the parents themselves. So you have an, a, a pretty good idea of a, a guesstimate of what they will do. And in a lot of cases, as it gets closer within, I say months, and certainly within a month, you have a, I would say you have an 80% chance of understanding what's, what, what they're going to do. Now, what you don't know is going to happen is what the teams are going to do. And, and, you know, there's certain kids that, you know, this, where you say, I I feel pretty good that he's coming to Vanderbilt. And then the next thing, you know, day one gone, you know, and so that, that happens, but uh, I've learned to kind of shed that uh, the worrying and, and, and deal with it after, after it's done. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the, 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 the two among many who made it to campus that uh, most of the draft attention ha- has been on. Um, you know, you've had the, the benefit of having a, a number of first round picks uh, come through, through your system, uh, through your program, uh, especially on the pitching side, you've had number one picks before David Price. Um, and you've had, you know, sort of pitching tandems uh, who, you mm-hmm. know, sort of, have been in the upper echelon kind of thinking of Walker Bueller and, and Carson Fulmer before Walker got hurt. But um, it, have you ever had a duo like this just in terms of how much attention and how, I mean, how good they are, but how much attention is being sort of, le- you know, heaped upon them as, as the spring has gone on? Probably not the attention just because of the world we're living in now. I, I think back to, David Price and Mikey Miner and, and Sonny Gray and Grayson Garvin and Walker Bueller and Carson Fulmer, you know, tandems of, of people that were drafted very high, uh, but probably not like this just because of 
the acclaim that they both arrived with and what really exists inside of our, our communication world right now in terms of the hype and, uh, and what the what the kids deal with on a on a day to day basis. So I would say no. This is this is a little bit unique, and there's a you know there's a difference in a year in terms of where they are. They're both eligible, but in terms of college, there's a year difference. Kumar has been here longer than Jack, but uh, no, it's 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 certainly a unique one. But I will say this, John, before we talk about it more, they both handle it very well. I mean, they're both very gifted guys. And I'm not saying that because I'm talking to you. I mean, in all the conversations that I have talking about Jack and Kumar, it's very easy to talk about them and want to talk about them because of how respectful they are towards one another, towards the program, and how much they care about team. And I think that piece in and of itself is probably as important as anything that they have from a tool standpoint. How much do they rely on each other or lean on each other just for, I mean, yes, like you said, they've gone through it before. Um, they both have fathers who have played sports at a very, very high level. Uh, I mean, are they able to kind of lean on each other so they know it's not, you know, this might be true of any two draft prospects who are, you know, potential first rounders, just like they're not going through this process with the spotlight on them alone. Well, they certainly do that. I mean, they're kind of lumped into that little bucket of, of players that potentially could be seen at, at, at such a level. So I think because of that, there's a commonality piece there. Uh, they both pitch side by side when we go into weekend series. But I think in terms of uh, their information and what they do, for sure, uh, they, 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 they communicate very well. Uh, their relationship has grown inside this program. Uh, Kumar looked after him, and now Jack is one of those kids who's taken more of a leadership role inside of our team, which is is great for the younger players. Uh, but yeah, they, they're they're very good with one another, very good with the team. I mean, they don't separate. I mean, they they do they do a good job of of inclusion, of including everyone in their circle, and their circle really are their teammates. That's kind of where the similarities uh, end. Obviously, they're both two very, very different pitchers. I wanted to get your vantage point on what you've seen from them uh, this spring uh, in terms of their performances, uh, you know, especially because, you know, yes, you, you've had them internally. Uh, they worked out in the fall, you know, but I think part of the, the extra heat of the spotlight is because we just haven't seen any of these guys in so long because of the pandemic. But, you know, what have you seen from each of them, Tim, in terms of what they've, you know, they've brought to, to, to the table as, you know, and, and they both sort of had some ebbs and flows as they've gone start to start here with really, you know, the first protracted mm -hmm. workload that they've had in quite some time. Well, I think with Kumar, it was uh, when we got him, I think competitive maturity is, is what, what I saw really grow inside of him. Now, I, I didn't, you know, you like to think you know kids a little bit before you get them, but you, you don't. You don't until they're in your environment. And I, I think with Kumar, watching him grow in that first year, Jonathan, was, you know, he start, he, his first outing start against TCU was an inning in the third, and we pulled him. And I just remember that day after how he attacked the training environment the next day and kind of moved on quickly, you know, not that it, it didn't, it, it, it bugged him, but in terms of what he did, he, his preparation, 
I thought that's pretty impressive. And that seemed to stay stable throughout the year and it did. Uh, but I, I just enjoyed watching him compete and really grow as a competitor. Jack, on the other hand, uh, very competitive kid, more internal. Um, I would say that there's a, a pitch component to him. You know, he came in as a pitcher. I know he's got a good arm and I know he's got really good stuff, but he was a pitcher first and we, we, dra we uh, drafted him. We recruited him as a uh, pitcher first because he was not thrown with that type of velocity. So, you know, Kumar was the kid that was good size, strong arm, power stuff. He became a pitcher. Jack was probably more of the pitcher type um, when he came in and has developed power as he's come along. So, yeah, they, they kind of went this way, but they've kind of now met a little bit in, in some certain ways. Bodies are different. Approaches are a little bit different. But uh, how they go about it is actually not as far away as some may seem. Fair enough. Fair enough. I wanted to ask uh, first about Jack specifically, you know, as, as we're recording this, his, his last couple of starts have not been, you know, he came out of the gate uh, uh, and even it, especially at the beginning of SEC play, <laughs> clearly the best pitcher in the country. And then he's hit a little, a little bump here. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that people worry about is because he's not really been seen as much. Kumar's got that full season as a freshman, at least, you know, be Jack made what four starts last year before the shutdown. And prior to that, people saw him at Del Barton prep in New Jersey, which is not exactly a, a, a great sample size there. What have you seen from Jack recently uh, that, you know, that you, that you and your staff have been able to notice that he's working on to fine tune so he can kind of sort of, bounce back from what's been, you know, especially by comparison, a few rougher outings? Well, I, I think, you know, as of late, the, the, the pitches, there, there's been more mistakes to the play more than anything else. And I think when you, let's face it, when you're facing Jack Leiter or Kumar, there's a, there's a great deal of focus on them in terms of a hitter, in terms of the scouting report, in terms of the approach. It's not like a team is approaching someone on a Tuesday night. I mean, when you go in against these guys, you, you, you have to be on mentally and you have to have a very good approach. And I think in a lot of different ways, and it certainly was a tremendous moment and will always be a great moment, but what can a guy do after his first SEC outing throw a no-hitter? Where does he go from there? What does he do? You know, it's like, this is not a bottom line business, as you know. I, you, you look at kids for who they are and what they're capable of doing. And I think what he's going through right now as I told him yesterday, is what all sophomores that have been at his level go through, but it just happens to be a sophomore year. And just because he's draft eligible doesn't mean that anyone should rob him of his sophomore experience. And his sophomore experience is just learning this league. And, that, you know, and the thing I tried to do with him, at least publicly, is protect him in a lot of different ways because as highly acclaimed as he was at the beginning of the season, I'd say he, had, he hadn't pitched an SEC inning yet. I mean, this is going to be a learning process for him as it was for Price, as it was for Gray, as it was for anyone. He's no different. Uh, he's very good like they are, but at the same time, he needs to go through these things too. And he should be afforded the opportunity to grow just like those guys did too. So I, I, I think I don't worry about Jack. Jack is a, a wired kid that's on to everything. And he, these experiences will actually really help him out moving forward. 
All right, quick question about Kumar and then we'll wrap things up. You know, I think the one sort of question mark with him from a, from a scouts from major league teams, you know, the, the stuff is undeniable. Uh, the one question may have been command, especially within the zone. You know, it's been pointed out by scouts that he gets a lot of swings and misses uh, on his ridiculously good breaking ball out of the zone because you get college kids who are, who are going to, to wave at it and not recognize it. That likely would not work you know, once he climbs the ladder, what have you seen from him in terms of him addressing that? You mentioned earlier that he's kind of evolved from thrower to pitcher as he's, he, he's gone on here. I've seen a lot of growth in that area, actually. And, and you know, there, there probably would, I think, with some people, when you start looking at him and say, okay, can you get major league hitters out? Well, the stuff could get major league hitters out. But you know, and I know that major league hitters are a lot more refined. I mean, they, they, there's a small zone there. They, there's a very good approach. So, yes, uh, his stuff is continued to get better. The command is continued to get better. I think the fastball command is where it starts and ends for me in terms of the last three weeks. That's really where I've seen the growth take off with him. And now the, the slider, it's not secondary, it's complementary. The secondary used to be on the front end of that. It used to be the primary pitch at some point in time because he knew he could get outs with it. Um, you know, he pitched in the Super Regional. He got a lot of outs with it, obviously. And then he pitched so well in the College World Series too. But I, I think, you know, like Jack, you're, you're seeing a kid, even though he's a, had a year more of experience here, you're seeing a lot of progression as a pitcher. I, I see a lot of growth with him. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to, to pick and, and pick things about people. You see all the warts on your own children, but with him, that, that's, a, that's a very, very talented young man in so many ways. And I would say from a personal standpoint and then an athletic standpoint, he brings a lot to the table when you talk about a clubhouse and you talk about a team environment. Of course, the nitpicking gets even you know uh, more extreme when you're being thought of as a as a top of the draft kind of guy because because of the investment and then things of that nature. You've been through that before. So, with that in mind, we're yeah, what about two months before the draft? You could save us a lot of time, Tim. Just tell us who's taking them and when. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I was a genie. I'd use my powers in a different way if that was the case, John. <laughs> Fair enough, Tim. Uh, it was good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, good luck to Vanderbilt uh, the rest of the way. I'm sure we'll, we'll all be watching. Uh, you know, another thing to consider, there's be a lot more attention on postseason play from a draft standpoint than there used to be because of the, of the timing, all that. That's a, another wrinkle that I'm sure that you're going to have to uh, deal with along the way. We will. We'll, we'll deal with it fine. But you're a good man, John. I appreciate everything you do for the game and the kids. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, my thanks to Tim Corbin. Uh, as, I, as I said at the outset, who's our, our colleague on the draft broadcast and with the timing of the draft, maybe he can do that again. Jim, I tried to get him to help you with, uh, with the mock uh, in terms of, you know, at the end there, trying to get him to, to let us know on the down low, of course, uh, where Lighter and Rocker were going to go in the draft, but he, uh, he, he didn't bite. So sorry, he, he was of no help to you this time around. Well, well I appreciated you trying there and, 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 and no hard feelings towards Tim. I, I don't think anybody knows right now. I don't, right. I don't know that Tim would tell us if he knew um, no. necessarily if he would share that, but like, I don't, I don't think even he knows. So um, no, no harm, no foul. And, and, and thanks for trying. Yeah. And, and certainly not on a, in a publicly digested interview. You know, uh, we'll see. I'll try to pump him for information on 
you know, uh, quietly uh, off the record. But even then, I don't know that he's going to budge. But we'll give that a shot. Um, that takes us right into our mailbag where we have an interesting uh, draft question. Uh, this comes from at Vino202, Vinny Buffone. Where do you project the number one overall pick to slot in the top 100 prospects? Uh, and Jim, I'll let you answer this, this first. You know, but that people probably know by now, uh, one of our big projects over the summer is post-draft trying to figure out where all of the draftees slot in, not only to the top 100, uh, but also into the team top 30s. Uh, so this is a little tough because we don't know who the number one overall pick is going to be. But uh, you know, what, uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts in terms of general neck of the woods? Yeah, and, and I will say one thing that makes this slightly easier for me is that when I did the pipeline inbox two weeks ago, uh, Mike Sellers, who asks both of us a lot of great questions, wanted me to rank the best prospects from the last two drafts. So in my mind, I kind of lined up so I can kind of use that as a comparison's sake. And I put, I put the top guys from this year kind of between Torkelson and Austin Martin, who was our second-ranked prospect in last year's draft and went fifth. So I would say, like right now, we, you know, I think Torkelson was a, a generational type of draft prospect. So like he's to me, he's far, you know, and we have him all the way up at number three. I think he's he's a cut above everybody else. But I think these guys would slot in, you know, around Austin Martin, who we have at 18, Max Meyer, who was the number three overall pick. Um, I, 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 you know, we have him at 23. I think he's they, they slot in somewhere around there. Now, that said, I think we're going to see, Jonathan, more graduations than usual this year because we saw fewer last year. And hmm. it's, I think, you know, pa Christian Pache and Andrew Vaughn are in the big leagues. They're probably going to graduate six weeks before the draft. Alex Kirilov's up. He's in between Martin and, and Meyer right now. He's going to graduate. There's a number of guys in AAA. You've got guys like Brian Hayes and Sixto Sanchez who are on big league DLs but have big league experience. So, I mean, the number one prospect, I, I think we're going to see a lot of change on the top 100 prospect list here, Jonathan. So they, they could come in, the number one pick could come in around 15 this year, which I think will be a little higher than usual. More so because of the circumstances than that guy's just a slam dunk, unbelievable guy compared to past years, if that if that makes sense. What do you think? No, it does. It does. And, you know, I think it's it speaks to where whoever this number one pick is would fit, right? So... Looking at last year, Spencer Torkelson, who you mentioned in terms of his offensive profile and what he brought to the table, I agree, was you know uh, way way up on on the, on the list of draftees. He was number seven on our top one hundred when we re ranked in the, in the summer. Austin Martin was twentieth. Uh, Asa Lacy was thirty fourth. Emerson Hancock thirty ninth. Um, then we had Nick Gonzalez and Max Meyer were all in the top fifty. Uh, and then we we, you know, we we shuffled when we when we when we did our rankings preseason. We made some corrections. We moved Meyer up, things like that. But I think where you have it sounds about right. Uh, you know, we've been kind of saying all along uh, back when people were trying to compare Kumar Rocker uh, to Steven Strasburg that he's not that kind of prospect. So let's say Rocker goes number one, and let's see he dominates the SEC the rest of the way. Like, could he? inch towards the top 10, especially as you pointed out, you know, given the fact that we may have 
a larger than usual number of graduations. Yeah, I could see that. But I think in, in that in that range, uh, I'd like that 12 to 15 range for, for whoever this number one pick is is, is going to be, uh, you know, but we'll have to wait and see when, once we once we get there, just how many guys have graduated and uh, and, and things of, of that nature. But excellent question, uh, Vinny. Thank you so much. Uh, that is going to do it for us for this week's MLB Pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating, hopefully a good one, and a review, again, a good one. Thanks for listening. Jason Ratliff, rest up. We'll see you next week.